presenting Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Focus on Truth is dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of the free grace of God and helping people understand the practical relevance of the Bible. Join now with Chuck as together we focus on the truth of God's Word. Today is our fifth in our series on uh, what it means to be saved by grace. And today our subject is justification by faith. Uh, And we're going to be talking about that. One of the things that we deal with a lot in business is is long-range planning. Why is long-range planning important? Yeah, okay, you're going to establish goals in doing that because if you don't know where you're going, you may not get there, or if you get there, you might not know that you're there if you don't have some goals. So what else about long-range planning comes up? Anybody, anything come to mind when you think of long-range planning? Yeah, budgeting. That's a a real real important thing. And one of the fascinating things is about, about long-range planning is usually within the, uh, within the course of long-range planning, uh, as things begin to take shape, what do we have to do as far as these long-range plans are concerned? If we're talking about something that's five or ten years down the road, when we get two or three or four years into that plan, very often what do we have to do? Yeah, review where we've been, revamp, revise our plan. Why would it be necessary to revise what we're doing? Yeah, things that we don't expect. The market changes. We were talking about that before the study uh, begins. Lots of things can happen. Well, one of the fascinating things in the Bible is that you discover that God has done some long-range planning too. And he has certain goals and even budgeting is, uh, is included in that because uh, God has, uh, has already uh, figured out what the price was going to be for what he was doing. And what we've been talking about the last few weeks is God's unbreakable chain of salvation where uh, we see from all eternity, uh, we see the election of God, which includes his foreknowledge and his predestination, that God has chosen his people before the foundation of the world in Christ to be his, that those whom he chose were those whom he foreknew, that is, he was intimate with them ahead of time. Uh, He predestined them to become conformed to the image of his son. And he's got this this chain that uh, Paul talks about in Romans chapter 8, verses 28, 29, and 30, whom he foreknew, he also predestined, whom he predestined, these he also called, whom he called, these he also justified, whom he justified, these he also glorified. Even uses the past tense for in talking about the time that we're going to be with the Lord. Now, how much of this long-range plan that God established from all eternity, how much does he have to revise and revamp that plan? Exactly. Go to the head of the class, Mark. Uh, zero. He doesn't, he doesn't have to do all that because God has ordained all of these things. He knows exactly what's going to happen. He determined that from eternity uh, and in time and space. He calls us to himself and then eventually 
in eternity again he will glorify his people which means he will bring them to be with him we will be exactly the way the Lord Jesus himself is all right now with that's kind of where we've been going now last uh, last time uh, last in fact the last two sessions we really focused on this thing of God's call and we said basically there are two aspects of the call to salvation one is the uh, is the general call of the gospel and the general call of the gospel means what 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 is it that we're talking about when we talk about the general call yeah going into all the world and doing what preach the gospel everywhere everybody you find share the good news with them and when we talk about when we talk about sharing the gospel what is what 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 is it uh, that uh, that really is the gospel? Is the gospel God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? That's not the gospel. The word gospel means good news. The good news is that Christ, that God has come. He's taken on human flesh. He has died for the sins of His people, and God was pleased to raise Him from the dead. If we proclaim the gospel, we proclaim. The coming of Christ, we proclaim his death and subsequent resurrection. That's the good news of the gospel. And God uses that as a means to accomplish his purpose. But we said that the general call of the gospel is inadequate to bring anybody to faith. Now, why is that? Yeah, it has to be specific. And why does it have to be specific? It has to be personal. Why does it have to be personal? Where's the problem? That's right. We're not going to respond. The problem is not with the message. There's nothing wrong with the message. The problem is not with God. There's nothing wrong with God. He's, he's perfect. The problem is with us. And the Bible says that we are dead in trespasses and sins, spiritually dead, unable to respond. Therefore, it takes not only the means of the general call, yes, we're to proclaim the gospel to everyone, but then secondly, there is the effectual call, and whose responsibility is that? That's God's. And God, by His Spirit, calls people to Himself. He takes the truth of the coming of Christ, His death and resurrection, makes it alive in our experience, takes us out of our deadness, makes us alive in Christ, we are regenerated, and this is what we talked about last week. We are, we are regenerated, G-E-N-E-R-A, it's hard for me to talk and write at the same time. We're regenerated, that means we are made alive, we are made new, and the, can, you, can you see regeneration when it happens? And the truth is no, you can't, because it takes place inside. I mean, all of us, Assuming that we are Christians, that we have come to faith, there was a time before this when we, too, were dead in trespasses and sins, and God brought us to life. Can you look at a person on the outside and necessarily tell that something has happened? Not necessarily immediately, you can't. But there are some evidences of change, and those evidences, and again, this is what we talked about last week, there are two evidences that the Bible talks about. One of them is repentance. Remember, the word repentance means to do what? The basic meaning of the word repent is to do what? To change our mind. That's right. 
Now, if our mind really changes, what happens to our behaviors? They change as well. It's possible to change our behaviors without changing our mind. But if we do that, when the pressure comes on, then what happens is I just go back to my old way of doing things because that's the comfortable way. But if my mind is really changed, if I'm convinced that this other way is the right way to do, then my behaviors are going to change as well. That's what's included in repentance. And the other part is faith in Christ. That is that instead of trusting in ourselves, we see our need to trust in Christ Jesus. Now the fascinating thing about this is that both these things, repentance and faith, are whose responsibility? Who is responsible to repent? Who is responsible to believe in Christ? We are. But how do we come to do that? What we discovered is that both those things are God's gifts to his people. In fact, um, and what I've just done is pretty much kind of gone through the review on the first page of your notes there. Notice uh, Roman numeral 1, part B, 2, and D, evidence, repentance, and faith. Both are commanded by God, and both are divine gifts to God's people. And we already know that faith is a gift because remember the, the key passage that we've been focusing on for this entire series is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. And what does Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 say? For by grace you have been saved through faith. Now how do you get the faith? Say, mm, I'm going to trust in Jesus. I'm going to get it all. You know, and we hear people doing that. But what does the next part of the verse say? It's the gift of God. The faith that we express toward God is God's gift to us. Furthermore, so is the repentance, the change of mind. And of course, that, that results out of regeneration, out of been, being made new, being made alive. And there's a verse there on the first page of your notes from 2 Timothy 2, verses 24 and 25, and this has to do with directions for elders within the context of the church, but I think you'll see the point that I'm making as we read it. This is from the New International Version. And the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. If we repent, why do we repent? It's because God grants us the ability to repent. We can't repent. We cannot have faith apart from the fact that it is a gift of God. Now, what happens? Now, see, we're talking about what happens in time and space, and there is an, there is an unbreakable link between this effectual call from the Spirit when God makes us alive, when He regenerates us, when we repent and express faith all the time because God has enabled us to do that, there's, there's an unbreakable link between that call and what happens next, and that's our topic for today, and that's the topic of justification. Now, usually, and normally, when we hear somebody talking about justifying what they do, or we say, ah, you're just justifying that, she's just justifying that, what do we mean when we say that? 
Yeah, more often than not, we're saying, you're just, you just kind of making an excuse for all of that. That's not what the word justification means in the Bible, and we're going to look at that very closely here in a minute. We're going to see that justification, that God justifies us, whatever that means, and we're going to talk about that, on the basis of this faith that we express. Again, if you'll look at the top of page one of your notes at Romans 5.1, there in that little box from the New American Standard Version, Paul begins this section of the letter of Romans by saying, therefore, having been justified by faith, we express the faith that God grants us and God justifies us. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what does it mean? What does the word justification mean? That's what we want to talk about today. Uh, the word is used throughout the, uh, throughout the scriptures, particularly in the, uh, in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, and I put this in your notes there, if you want to look at it, it's on the flip side here. Uh, you see it, uh, and I've just put a couple of uh, examples from Deuteronomy 25, verse 1, and Proverbs 17, verse 15. Notice, and this is just to give you an idea about the, the usage of the word itself. It says, if there's a dispute between men and they go to court and the judges decide their case and they justify the righteous and condemn the wicked, so justification has something to do with righteousness and wickedness. Notice that next verse from Proverbs 17, verse 15. Acquitting the guilty, what does it mean to acquit? Yeah, to, to declare someone innocent, okay? To, to acquitting the guilty and condemning the innocent, the Lord detest them both. Why would the Lord detest acquitting the guilty and condemning the innocent? Yeah, because it, it's not true. That's right. What, 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 what should be the right thing to do? To condemn the guilty and to acquit the innocent. Now, the word justify, and we're going to see this here in a minute, has one meaning and one meaning only in the Bible. It means to declare righteous. It means to acquit. And what we discover is that through faith in Christ, God acquits us of our sin, which brings up an interesting, um, an interesting point. Because if the Lord detests acquitting the guilty and condemning the innocent. Are you and I guilty sinners before we come to Christ or not? Yeah, we are. And yet, what is it that God does? God acquits us of our sin. Now, how can God do that? That's right, through faith. Because on the ground of the finished work of Christ, you are exactly right. That's what we're going to be talking about today. And next week, we're going to talk about the flip side, as it were, of this. We're going to talk about the price, that it, what it costs God to save his people. 
because it's the flip side of what we're going to be talking about here today. We're going to be sort of looking at it from our viewpoint today. In the New Testament, the, uh, the word that's used that means to justify is used uh, 39 times in the New Testament. And justification always seems to be contrasted with condemnation. I, uh, I've got a verse there, Luke 18, verse 14, in your notes, but I, want to, uh, I didn't have room to put the entire little passage, so I want to read the passage to you. There's about four or five verses that precede that, and you kind of get the idea. I'm reading from Luke chapter 18, uh, starting at verse 9. He, Jesus, also told this parable to certain ones who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Now here's the story he tells. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee. What was a Pharisee anyway? Yeah, kind of a scholar, uh, a, real, a religious muckety-muck. This was, this was, a, this was a big wheel. In, in religious circles, in, in Judaism. It says, one was a Pharisee and the other was a tax gatherer. Now, we know what tax gatherers are. The old King James Version uh, calls that person what? Anybody remember? A publican. Not a republican, but a publican. That was a tax gatherer. What they do is they worked, they were Jewish people who worked for the Roman government. And they would assess, the Roman government had assessed taxes and the publicans, the tax collectors, are the one who would gather those taxes, but they always tended to gather a little bit more, and that was their cut off the top. And so you can imagine how the people who lived in, uh, in Judea and Galilee and all these areas felt about tax collectors. How would they have viewed them? Sure, the way most of us feel about the IRS, whether it's true or not. That's right, okay, so you got two guys going up to the temple. One is a religious muckety-muck. He dresses perfectly. He can quote all the verses from the old Torah. He know, he's got his stuff together, as it were, uh, he would think. And then you've got this guy over here, the tax collector, who is hated by everybody. Nobody wants to see him coming. In fact, he is just a defilement to the temple when he shows up. So they're both there to pray. And the Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself. God, I thank thee that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax gatherer, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift his eyes up to heaven but he was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And then your verse, Jesus gives the punchline. I tell you that this man, the tax gatherer, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus said that this guy was the one who was justified. He was the one who was acquitted of his sins. What, what was the difference in the way they prayed? Now, I know you don't have it to look at, but as you listen to what I was reading, what was the difference in their prayers? Yeah, the Pharisees over here praying, and it says he prayed to himself. 
Lord, I sure am glad I ain't like all these other folks around here. Look at all this stuff that I do. And what was the Pharisee essentially saying? He's saying, I got my stuff together. God ought to be real pleased. God's lucky to have me on the team, as it were. And the tax gatherer is saying, oh, God. He won't even look up toward heaven. He just looks down and he beats his breast and he says, oh, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. And Jesus said, it's the tax gatherer who is justified, who is acquitted. And again, this springs, if, if the word justify means to acquit, to declare righteous, and that springs from this. Don't you see the link here with faith, with repentance? What is it that the tax... Do, do you see the Pharisee in this story expressing faith in God? No, he's expressing faith in the fact that he's done all this stuff, so God ought to be impressed. Is he expressing repentance? No, he hasn't changed his mind. He's not sorry. Yeah, his behaviors haven't changed. He's trying to impress God. But when you look at the tax gatherer, what do you see him doing? You see him in faith, throwing himself on the mercy of God. You see him repenting. Oh, God, I recognize I'm wrong. Have mercy on me. All of that's true. And Jesus says, that's the one who's acquitted. Notice the other verse that I've got there, a very famous verse that all of us uh, should, of which we should be aware from Romans 8, verses 33 and 34, where Paul writes, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who's the one who condemns? You remember in our, in our system of uh, jurisprudence, very often there will be decisions that will be made down in the, say, in the superior court or somewhere like that. And then if somebody doesn't like uh, the judgment that was made, very often what will happen? It's appealed. It goes up to another court. Eventually it may get to the appellate court, and eventually where's the highest place it can go in our land? To the Supreme Court. That's right. And once the Supreme Court makes a ruling on it, and remember, they, the Supreme Court doesn't retry the case. They just review everything, and they either say, this stands, or mm, there were some problems here, so the case will have to be retried, but it'll be retried by a lower court, not by the uh, Supreme Court. They simply review things. Once that decision is made, if they say the judgment that was made by this lower court or this appeals court stands, is there any other recourse? No, that's it. Once the Supreme Court has spoken, what is it that God's saying here? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who declares someone righteous. God is the one who acquits. Is there another court to which you can appeal beyond God? No. There's not that see, that's the point that he's making. Who's the one who condemns? Now, very often we condemn ourselves, and the Bible even addresses that. It says, if our hearts condemn us, John writes in 1 John, God is greater than our hearts, and he knows all things. Some people have a, a conscience that really works on them a lot. Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and what's he doing, according to this verse? Yeah, he's interceding for us. So God says, once we have been acquitted, once we have been declared righteous, 
there's no higher court. There's no changing of that decision whatsoever. So justification is really a legal term. It's a forensic term. And the meaning is to acquit, to declare righteous. Now, very often, if someone is acquitted in our system, what, what would be the purpose if someone is acquitted, if someone goes to trial, let's say uh, they go to trial for, they've been accused of, uh, of murder. They go to trial, and after a lengthy period of time, the jury comes back with a not guilty verdict. They are acquitted. What would be the reason for returning such a verdict? Okay, there might be uh, inadequate evidence. Can you think of any other reasons? Uh, technicalities, okay, might, uh, might enter in there some way. You know, remember that's the reason that, uh, everybody now when they get arrested, they're read certain kind of rights. Remember what those rights are? They're Miranda rights. And that goes back, I believe it was to a case in Arizona. Uh, technicalities might be a reason. What, uh, what other things might, can you think of any other reasons why, why somebody might be acquitted? Yeah, you might, uh, you might have a, a prejudiced jury. Anything else comes to mind? What, what is it that the judge says to the jury when he, when he gives them the charge before they go in to make their decision? What is it that they are to consider? Reasonable doubt. That's what it sounds like. It'd be a great movie, doesn't it? Reasonable doubt. Now, that's a, that's a good list. Four things here. Reason, and I'm sure there are others, but the reason that if we were on a jury, the reason we might acquit somebody of a charge is because there just wasn't the evidence there. Inadequate. There might be some sort of technicality. The, uh, the DA didn't get the right kind of search warrant or they got it for the wrong address. You know how that stuff works. There might be a prejudiced jury and there's... There might be members of the jury that are prejudiced, and some, some people think that that has happened recently in a very uh, uh, popular case. Uh, there might be a, really a reasonable doubt. You just haven't convinced me beyond a reasonable doubt that this person has done this. Now, when we think about this in terms of the greatest court in the universe, and that's God who is the one who acquits, is there inadequate evidence that you and I are guilty sinners? No. No, we're born sinners. We act like sinners. We're sinners by nature. We're sinners by choice. Clearly, there is no problem with the evidence at all as far as we're concerned. Uh, are there any kind of technicalities? Well, can't think of any. Uh, after all, God says, the soul that sins, it will die. No technicalities. We're sinners. We deserve death. Prejudice jury. Well, in this case, there isn't really a jury. There's just a judge. And would that judge, could we accuse God of being prejudicial in any way? No, because he's holy and righteous and perfect in every way. So that one won't work either. 
uh, reasonable doubt. Might there be in God's mind any reasonable doubt as to whether or not we actually are sinners? No. So we look at this and we say, whoa, there's no reason for God to acquit us. There's no reason for God to all of a sudden bang his gavel down and say, I declare Bradshaw to be righteous. At least there's no reason in us. But there is a reason. And that's what justification is all about. There are a lot of teaching on justification. I want to point you just to a couple of things, and I want us to look at the uh, situation of Abraham. Uh, in Genesis chapter 15, those first six verses, after these things, and the, the term these things there refers to some local warfare in which Abraham had been involved. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, Don't fear, Abram. See, he'd been at war with some of his neighbors there, and he was getting a little afraid. He didn't know whether they were going to get testy with him or not. Don't be afraid, Abram. I'm a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And Abram said, O Lord God, what wilt thou give me since I'm childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Apparently the chief steward was the one who was going to inherit Abram's fortune. And Abram said, Since thou hast given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, Abram, saying, This man, this steward, this Eliezer, will not be your heir, but one who shall come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. Now, who's God talking about here? Who was it that was going to? Isaac, that's right. Now, of course, God doesn't identify him here, and later on, Abraham and Sarah decide they need to help God out. And uh, remember, that's when they got Hagar, the handmaid, and the result of that was Ishmael, which was a disaster. God's talking about Isaac, and then eventually through Isaac, who is God talking about? Christ Jesus himself, who was ultimately to come. And he took God, took him, Abram, outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. All right, so what has God just done to Abram? What do we call this? He, he made a covenant, and in the context of that covenant, what's he done? He's made him a promise. And what's the promise? That he's going to have offspring. And he's going to, is it just going to be one offspring? No, there's just going to be jillions of them, like the stars everywhere. All right, so he makes him this phenomenal promise. Now, what exactly is Abraham and Sarah's condition at this point, physically? They're old, that's right. Sarah's already hit menopause, and Abraham is 10 years older than she is. So from a physical standpoint, you'd say, hmm, this is an interesting promise. Cause, and I'm sure it contributed to the fact of they're trying to help God out to bring this to pass later on. God makes a promise. Now notice Abram's response. It says, verse 6, Then he, Abram, believed in the Lord, and he, the Lord, reckoned it to him as righteousness. Now that is very important. What does it mean to reckon? 
say, are you going to lunch at Burger King? I reckon I am. This has nothing to do with that. It has nothing to do with our southern colloquialism. What does it mean to reckon something? When he says he reckoned it to him as righteousness. He had determined. I'm sorry. To bring. That's, certainly that's included in it. If you look in the dictionary, one of the, uh, one of the synonyms for reckon is uh, one of the, well, it's not really a synonym, it's, it's a meaning, and then I'll give you a synonym. It means to credit to the account. To reckon is to credit to the account. So he says, Abraham believed in the Lord. He expressed faith. And expressing faith, God reckoned something to his account. And what does it say he reckoned to his account? Righteousness was what he reckoned to his account. Now, synonym for the word reckon is the word impute. It means exactly the same thing, to credit to the account. All right, so here's what you've got. You've got God. We'll represent God with a triangle here. That's, that'll be biblical. And we've got, uh, we've got Abram down here. He's a, here's, a, here's a stick figure. Abram's down here. And so what is it that, uh, that God does? God makes Abram a promise. And what does Abram do? He responds to it in what? In what? With faith. Abram responds in faith. And incidentally, where do you think he got the faith? Yes, faith is a gift of God. He responds in faith, and it's the faith that God gave him at the same time he gave him the promise. And then what is it that God does? He imputes righteousness. Does that mean that Abram never sins again? <laughs> no, if it meant that, uh, the Bible would really be a wacky book because Abram did all kinds of screwball things for the rest of his life. God imputed righteousness to him. He credited it to Abram's account. And see, that's what the great exchange is when God justifies us. Basically what we're talking about is that the wrath of God, the book Paul writes in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1, that the wrath of God is hanging over everybody everywhere. All people. And why is it hanging over all people? Why? Because we're all sinners. What we do, do we deserve God's wrath? Yes, we do. We deserve God to zap us and to separate us from his presence forever. That is exactly what we deserve. But what God has done is he has interposed his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and what God did, that if you don't know what that little zip-zap thing is. That's a lightning bolt coming out of this cloud of wrath here. God 
poured out his wrath on his son. Now, why would God do that? Was the son, was Jesus guilty of sin? No, he's the perfect, innocent one. Was, did, is this what Jesus deserved to get? No, he didn't deserve that. In fact, he deserved just the opposite of that. So why does God do this? It's so that God's people, and here we'll draw another, well, we draw two stick figures because I don't want to be known as a, uh, as a, as, as, that's right, as somebody, as, as, a, as a chauvinist pig over here. Uh, so you got, God's got his own people, and what God does is he takes all of the sins of these people. Who are these people? Those whom he has elected to salvation, those whom he has foreknown, predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, those to whom the gospel has come and the Holy Spirit has come, made them alive, and they have repented, and they have expressed faith because God has granted that to them. And as they express faith in the finished work of Christ, God takes all of their sins, and guess what he does with them? He reckons those sins. He imputes those sins where? To the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of the righteousness, all of the perfection that Christ Jesus himself is, guess what he does with that? He imputes that to those who are trusting in Christ. That's what justification is all about. That's the great exchange. Now, there's some verses that, uh, that talk about this. Let's look at them uh, on, the, uh, on the third page of your notes there. Notice uh, at the top of the page under justification by faith, uh, Romans chapter 3. Notice what Paul writes. But now apart from the law... That's the law of Moses. Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Whom God displayed, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation. We're going to talk about propitiation next week. That means that has to do with the appeasing of the wrath of God. God's wrath has been appeased toward his people. Why? Because God said, Well, Hazel is such a nice person that I am not going to pour out my wrath on her. No, that is not what God did. God took all of Hazel's and mine, and everybody, all of God's people, placed that sin on Jesus and then poured out his wrath and executed Jesus for the sins of all of these people. And he did it publicly. It wasn't done in a closet. That's what he's talking about here. God publicly, displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. To demonstrate whose righteousness? God's righteousness. Well, Who'd call God's righteousness into question? Well, Paul tells us. Because in the forbearance of God, 
He passed over the sins previously committed. In other words, well, wait a minute. Now, the Bible says that, that if you sin, you die. There's no getting around it. So you got all these people like Abraham and Sarah and Moses and Joshua and Ruth, and you just go through all the Old Testament and say, well, now why didn't God zap those people? Well, the reason, and, and people would say, well, God's not being just because God's not doing what he's supposed to do is God. He's supposed to condemn sin. Well, he does condemn sin. And all of the sins of those Old Testament people, just like all of our sins, were placed upon Christ. Even in that promise that God made to Abraham when he said, your descendants are going to be like the stars of the heaven. That's a reference to all of the people who would come to faith in Christ because of Christ. Okay, in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time that he might be just, in other words, that he does what's right, and that he might be the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? Works? No, by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. You find, and notice on your last, on the last page, and I want to sort of, we'll have to, we only got about four, four and a half minutes left, so I want to kind of conclude it here. You find this same truth in the great confessions of the church. I will uh, pick out, uh, well, let's just look at the old Heidelberg Catechism. That's one that we don't know a lot about, so it'll be good. This is from question and answer 60. Question is, how are you right with God? And the answer is, only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments and of never having kept any of them, and even though I am still inclined toward all evil nevertheless, without my deserving it at all, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner, as if I had been perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. All I need to do is to accept this gift of God with a believing heart. Justification by faith. One of the tremendous things I think about this is that in the, the bottom line, everybody wants to know what the bottom line is. The bottom line is that justification assures us that our sins are forgiven, that we do not need to fear being cut off from Christ, that we don't even need to fear the great judgment day one day when it comes because all of our sins, all of the sins of all of God's people have been dealt with in Christ. And if all of those sins have already been punished in Him, then when we stand before God, all of our sins have already been punished. God has shown himself to be just by what he has done in his son. See, the great exchange here that we're talking about is that I get that Christ got my sin and I get his righteousness. That 
Christ got my stubbornness and I'm credited with his obedience. That Christ was credited with all of my imperfections and God credits me with all of the perfections of Christ. And God, in spite of my disregard for him and my hostility for him, God credits the love of Christ to me. That's the great exchange that takes place at the cross. Horatio Spafford wrote this years ago after tragically losing several members of his family in the North. He said, My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not it. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Edward Mote wrote, My hope is built on nothing less than what? Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Do we know that our sins are forgiven? Do we know where we stand with God? We have no access to the eternal electing mind of God. But the great news is that whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. When we express faith, God justifies us. He declares us righteous. He acquits us of our sins. Gone, 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 gone. Yes, my sins are gone. We sing. And what a glorious thing that is. Next time, we're going to talk about what really went on at the cross, what's involved in the justification of our sins, what happened to bring about this great exchange, what it cost God to save the likes of you and me. Father, thank you for your kindness and mercy. Thank you for the grace and the goodness that we see in our Lord Jesus, and thank you for this great exchange. We freely admit and attest that the salvation that we have experienced is by your grace. We did not deserve it. You've been listening to Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Your gifts to Focus on Truth are tax deductible. For a free copy of our monthly newsletter, Glimpses of Truth, or other information about the ministry, write to Focus on Truth, Box 5367, Columbus, Georgia, 31906.